You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Seraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I thought uh, I'd, I'd ask a question of you, just to get you thinking about the passage. Have you ever seen something that made you say the Lord's hand was in that? Something that you think that could never have happened <laughs> without God behind it, God doing his work. I've seen a few things like that in my life, and, and one that came to mind, uh, in the late 90s, I was involved in a church that decided to put on an evangelistic event. That's pretty normal for churches. <laughs> well, what that means is they were going to put something on and they'd invite people along so they could hear about Jesus, just like Joe Ash was saying, we want to know Jesus and make him known. And so these people said, let's talk about Jesus, explain who he is and what he's done, and invite people to trust in Jesus. This event ended up having 96% of all the churches in the entire region around that church decide to come. To put that into perspective, it's like not just one church in Geelong putting something on, it's like the entire churches all across Geelong and Surf Coast going, yeah, we want in. <laughs> Nothing like that had ever happened or happened since. And hundreds of people came to the faith, decided to become Christians. And so that was an event that when we looked at it and we saw the sort of very humble beginnings and what eventuated, we thought, that was the Lord's doing. If the Lord wasn't involved, nothing like that ever would have happened. The hand of the Lord was over it. Now, the reason I want us to think about that idea, the hand of the Lord, is you might have noticed it actually came up twice in our Bible reading. 
We're going to look at Ezra chapter 7 and 8 today, and it comes up six times. <laughs> it's obviously important. And so we need to start thinking about what it looks like when the hand of the Lord is on something or over it. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to work our way through these chapters. Then we're going to see what they tell us about Jesus, because as we've heard, he's who we're all about. And then we're going to apply it to ourselves. Therefore, it's really helpful if you have Ezra chapter 7 still open there before you. And if you're just opening it up again or trying to find it, let me just give you a quick update of our series so far. As Joash said, we're looking at the book of Ezra. After next week, we'll have finished it off and we'll go into the sequel, Nehemiah. And so far in the book of Ezra, in chapter one, we were told that God's people were in Babylonia. They'd been taken captive by the Babylonian Empire and they had been called to the Jews to go back to the land of Israel. God's people to go back and build a house to God, a temple to worship him in. And last week you would have heard that week, sorry, that work was completed. So what next? Well, as you heard in our Bible reading, it's time for Ezra to rock up. The book's named after him and we've had six chapters and he hasn't been around yet. Now it's time. And you might have noticed in that Bible reading, this guy is given quite the introduction. I don't know if you've ever been in an event where someone is announced before they walk in or maybe before they speak. We heard that there in 7 verse 1 to 6. This guy has credentials. <laughs> he's not just a priest. We're told he's descended from the original priest for God's people. This guy traces his ancestry.com back to Aaron, the brother of Moses, who brought God's people out of Egypt. That's why there's so many names there. This is the guy. And we're told he doesn't just have credentials there in verse 1 to 6. He's also got the skills for the job. In 7 to 10, as we just heard read out, it's a bit of a summary of what's going to come next. But we're also told there in verse 6, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Verse 10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This guy's got the history, he's got the background, but he's also got the ability to teach God's people God's word. The temple has been rebuilt, but God's people need to be rebuilt through God's word so they can live for the Lord. He's got the credentials. He's got the skills. Chapter 7, verse 11 to 26. He's also got the okay. He's got the authorization. I don't know how closely you've been reading the book of Ezra so far, but there's a lot of letters in it from kings. <laughs> and here in this letter, we're going to just zero in quickly on verses 13 to 15. We're told what he's authorized to do. Verse 13. Take some people back to the land with you. That's job number one. Verse 14, teach God's people God's law. That's a second job. 
Verse 15, carry some loot. The king wants to give an offertory for this work that's going on. He wants to share some of his valuables from his treasury. Can you take this back with you? When you go to teach the law, take the people, take the loot. And in verse 27 and 28, we read Ezra's first words. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. He just cannot believe that a foreign king is giving money to the Jewish people to worship their God. He can't believe that earlier in the chapter we're told he had this idea to do this and the king granted him approval. He's struggling to believe that not only has the king said yes, but he's given all this money. How could this be possible? Verse 28, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. It's a work of God that leaves Ezra going. This never could have happened apart from God. His hand was on me. The hand of the Lord was on Ezra. And so Jews, when they read this text, they consider Ezra one of their mighty men of the faith. They actually call him the second Moses. Moses received God's law from the Lord, but Ezra taught it. In fact, he started up a whole sort of school. You might see there that he's described as a scribe. And as we get to the time of Jesus, we see that there were scribes and Pharisees around. Scribes are like Bible scholars. The people today that lecture at Bible college, that they write commentaries. Ezra was number one. The hand of the Lord must, been, must have been operating for such a man as this to be sent to the temple to teach God's people. More than that, though, in chapter 8, the first half, we're told another way the hand of the Lord was on not Ezra this time, but on his people. 8 verse 1. You thought Joash got a bunch of names before, then try and read the next few verses. I'm not going to try. These are the heads of the father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. A lot more names. <laughs> and in verse 15, we're told that Ezra gathers all these people. He does a bit of a roll call. And as I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Now, it's hard to notice this when we sort of read this story first time through, but this is actually 60 years later. God's people have got up, they've moved on, they've rebuilt the temple. 60 years later, Ezra says to these other people, let's go back. Why were they still around? Well, it seems to suggest as we look here about the tribe of Levi, these guys didn't want to leave. Life was pretty good for these people. If we actually read some of those names there in chapter 8, a lot of them are the same families from Ezra chapter 2. Families seem to break up over this. Some went, some stayed. 
Even when Ezra tries to gather more people and say, hey, let's go back, the temple's ready, let's do this, we're told that some people still don't want to go. There are no Levites there. Why is that significant? Well, at the end of verse 17, we're told that Levites are ministers for the house of our God. Ezra's job is a priest. He's going to teach God's word. He's going to offer sacrifices. But there's just, there's other stuff that needs to be done in the temple. And Levites are the ones who do that ministry. They're the servants. They make everything else run. And so, verse 18, by the good hand of our God upon us, they ended up with about 250 extras. Legitimate, authorised people. The hand of the Lord was on Ezra. The hand of the Lord was on God's people. They went from no servants to 250, almost. And the other thing we're told the Lord's hand was over is there in the second half of chapter 8. Verses 21 through to the end of the chapter, we're told that They've got this journey and they want to be protected. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava so that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children and all our goods. Why? Verse 22. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God, there's that phrase again, is for good on all who seek him. Now, I think it's worth just pausing there and trying to figure out what's going on. It seems like Ezra's made a foolish boast. God's hand is on us. Oh, I did say that, but now I need a bit of a, (laughs) I need protective services. (laughs) I need an armed escort. What do I do now? I know, I'll pray. That'll that'll work. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what's going on is Ezra has declared to the king the truth. He stated facts. God has said this. His word has confirmed it. He's saying God's hand is over those who serve him. But that doesn't mean everything's always going to go right or great for us perfectly. He knows the fact God's hand is on those who serve him. And he responds with faith. God, remember your word. Keep your promise to us. Protect us. Provide for us. And he does. Verse 23, so we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. Verse 31, then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. That's a pretty amazing thing because if you picked up in our Bible reading, that's a journey of four months through the desert. And in between there, we're told what they were carrying. I did a bit of mass this week, verses 25 through to verse 27. These guys are loaded with loot. 
the little footnote in my Bible says that one talent of silver or gold is 34 kilos. These guys had nearly a thousand talents. That means the Levites who we're told had to carry this stuff were carrying the equivalent of four 10-year-old kids each. Four months walking through the desert, you've got a kid on your back, you've got a kid on your front, you've got one in each arm. These things here, I'm told, are 25 kilos. That's 10 kilos less. These guys must have had wagons, they must have had carts, they were loaded down with silver and gold for four months walking through the desert. And at the end of chapter 8, we're told, every single bit was accounted for. It must have been the hand of the Lord upon them. Again, this story, which we're probably not that familiar with, is so famous, so important to Jews that they consider this a second exodus. Not only is Ezra like the second Moses, this is a second exodus. Moses led God's people out of Egypt. Ezra led them out of Babylonian captivity. Moses encouraged the people to loot their neighbours. And here Ezra is walking through with loot from the king himself. God's people travelled through the desert and were brought safely to worship the Lord. And these people are brought safely through the desert to worship the Lord. Ezra is a huge figure in ancient Israelite writings. Second Moses, second Exodus. But you and I are probably a lot less familiar with Ezra. I struggle to find it in my Bible. You might notice I've got a, <laughs> a bookmark here, so I open up at it. And that's because as, as good as Ezra might have been, he doesn't really compare to our Lord Jesus Christ, does he? Jesus is the second Moses. In John chapter 1, when we're introduced to Jesus, we're told that the law came through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ezra might be compared to Moses, who went up on a mountain to meet with the Lord. But in Luke chapter 9, we're told that Moses appeared again to meet with Jesus, God's son. Ezra never met the guy. Moses came to meet Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, we're told that Jesus was glorified. He shone with all the glory as the son of God. And he spoke to Moses about his own exodus. Luke 9 verse 31. Moses might have brought people out of Egypt, but Jesus' exodus would provide people the way out of sin. Jesus' exodus didn't just rescue people from a foreign land, but from the kingdom of darkness, we're told. He would defeat death for us. In God's good kindness, Ezra didn't have to fear any enemies on the way. He was delivered from them all. But Jesus 
met our greatest enemy, our adversary, Satan himself, and bound him, defeated him by rising again. Ezra might be pretty great, but our Lord Jesus is so much greater. He's the second Moses. His exodus meant that we have a way out of sin, death, and Satan's rule over us. And so this morning, as I was driving here, actually, I shared this with Joash, I thought, now is a time when we should celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're reflecting on Jesus and just who he is and what he's achieved for us. And so it's appropriate to give him thanks and praise. I've been reading the book of Hebrews lately. In chapter 3, it says this. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has than for the house itself. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful in God's house as God's son. So much greater than Moses or indeed Ezra. Ezra was a priest. He had a very impressive resume there, a very impressive credentials. And in chapter 5 of Hebrews, we're told, high priests are chosen from among men. They are appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And it goes on to say, Jesus is not just a priest. He's our high priest. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. He opened for us a new and living way through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the household of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. My little girl was invited over someone's house yesterday. It was after she played basketball. She's all hot and sweaty, wearing the wrong clothes. She, she just didn't feel comfortable. Are you comfortable with the idea of turning up in God's heavenly throne room? Dirty by sin? Stained by failure? We have confidence to enter the most holy place because the blood of Jesus has sprinkled us clean and washed us with pure water. It's appropriate, therefore, that we confess our sins to Lord God Almighty, but we do so in full assurance that Christ Jesus, as our high priest, has made the way open for us to do so. He has delivered us for the good hand of the Lord was on him. So let's spend a moment or two thinking about ways that we've failed to live God, live for God as we should, or love our neighbour as we ought. 
And then I'll confess our sins generally and thank God for the forgiveness we have in Jesus. Heavenly Father, we recognise here that we are not worthy to, to gather up the crumbs from under your table, let alone to feast forever with you. Thank you that Christ Jesus therefore came, that he went to an exodus, his way out was on the cross, where he set us free from the captivity to sin, where he defeated death, and where he stood against Satan, our greatest adversary, so that we indeed might live. Father, we recognise that we deserve your punishment for failing to live for you as we should. Thank you that Christ has forgiven us. And just as he was raised to life, so we are raised to live a new life for you. Father, forgive us for our sins, we pray. In the name of Christ, our High Priest. Amen. I'm going to invite you in a moment to come forward. We're going to come up to this little table here to my left. Uh, you'll receive some gluten-free crackers uh, and also um, some juice. And then if you can hold on to them as we return to our seats, because we will eat and drink together in thankfulness. Let's share together the Lord's Supper. We remember that on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body given for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, as we eat this together, let's feed on Jesus Christ in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen. After the supper that night, we're told that Jesus took the cup and again, after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, let's drink it together with thanksgiving. After the Lord's Supper, we generally pray. I'm going to do that in a moment. But first, I wanted just to apply what we've been reading in Ezra, not just to the Lord Jesus, the hand of the Lord was on him, but also to us who are called to be Little Christs. That's what the word Christians means. In the story of Ezra, we see six times the hand of the Lord was on Ezra, the priest. It was on God's people. It was on God's provision and protection on their journey. And we've talked about how the Lord's hand was, of course, on Jesus himself. But the Lord's hand is not just on the big and spectacular. God makes the sun rise every day. His, Lord's ha the, his hand is on that. When we look at the story of Ezra, I might have blown it up a bit more than perhaps it needed. I was running a Bible reading course this week. And I was talking about some of the sort of famous people in the Old Testament. Abraham, the father of faith. Moses, the man of God. King David, a man after God's own heart. I, I didn't mention Ezra. And sure, he might seem to be a great guy. Momentous things were happening. Second Moses, second Exodus, all that. 
But really it was one guy who led, if my mass is correct, about one and a half thousand people through a desert for four months in a bit of an obscure part of the world. The hand of the Lord is on the momentous, but it's also on the mundane. We say God must have been at work here when we see something supernatural or spectacular. But we should also say it when we see something somewhat natural. The hand of the Lord was on Ezra, a man who had studied God's word, who kept it and taught it. And I trust that the hand of the Lord is also on those in our midst who do the same for us. Louis and Joash. Tash in at City Kids, our GC leaders. Over the past few years, how many Christian leaders have you seen who have studied the word but failed to do it and been removed from ministry? Like Ezra in chapter 7, our response should be, the hand of the Lord is on these men and women. And we should give thanks for them. We should uphold them in prayer that this will continue to be the case. In Ezra 8, we're told that the hand of the Lord was over God's people because he raised up some Levites, people willing to serve in the household of God. The hand of the Lord is on us when we do it. When we practice ministry, the Levites did (laughs) the very basic things around the temple. And this morning I've spoken to people and met people who've done very basic things like providing this for us, doing morning tea, welcoming people, setting up everything that needs to be done. The hand of the Lord is in that, that he has moved people's hearts to serve in that way as much as he was back then. So I praise God for you people and pray for you to be protected in this ministry too. And finally there in Ezra 8, we see that the hand of the Lord was over God's people as they went on this journey. And as we journey with the Lord, I trust that he protects you too. We looked at the the letter of 1 Peter last term. And I don't know if you remember the end of it. It's a scene where God's people are described as sheep. And we're told our adversary, our enemy, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Lion versus lamb. I know who my money's on. I know who I expect to win that conflict. But the very next verse says, resist him. We can stand against the enemy because of Christ Jesus our Lord. If the hand of the Lord God is on us, we can say no to sin. Most days I pray a prayer. Lord, guide that today I fall into no sin. I haven't done that yet. 
but I'm getting closer. Not because I'm becoming sinless, but I'm sinning less than I used to. I'm able to resist temptation sometimes in ways that I used to fail. And so I pray each day also, Lord, save us from the time of trial. Deliver me from temptation and save me from the evil one. And when I do, the Lord's hand is on me. When you say no to sin, the Lord's hand is on you too. So I'm now going to pray that prayer that wraps up Holy Communion. And it's asking the Lord's hand to be on us, really. That as we've confessed our sins, we will not return to them, but live the new life that God requires. Let me pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your hand was on Ezra and on the Lord Jesus, and we trust each day is on and over us. We pray for those who lead us in your word, who teach us your word. We pray that your hand might be on them. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for those who serve us in many and various ways. May they do so in the strength that you provide. And Father, when we resist temptation and say no to sin, we pray that we might also have eyes of faith that recognise that this too is by your hand. That if you had not done this good work in us, it would not have happened. Heavenly Father, King of Kings, we praise you for Christ Jesus our Lord and for his grace to us each and every day. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.